Hello, I'm Kristen Perisonotto. And I'm Hannah Ferguson, and we're co-founders of Cheek Media Co. This is the Weekly Cheek Podcast. Before we start this episode, I'd like to acknowledge that Cheek Media Co. operates on stolen land, and the land belongs to the Turrbal and Yagara people, and it was never ceded. All right, welcome back to the Weekly Cheek Podcast. Welcome. I'm Kristen. Nice to meet you. <laughs> you fucking think I'm going to do the same thing that you just did? You would have loved well, it. Like, I'm Hannah. I like to see if you do it sometimes just to Good test. spice it up. <laughs> Um, all right, so we just uh, interviewed Van Batham, who has written a book called QAnon and On. Yeah, about QAnon, obviously. Yeah, well, good, good. It's so very descriptive title. <laughs> but that's good. I like that. You don't have to judge a book by its cover, but it's really good when you know what it's about. Fiction doesn't give you that. Hello. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I just felt like mine. My mic wasn't working. Mm. Sorry, yes. this is not what we're here to talk about. Whether or not the book adequately is described by its title. No, surprisingly not. Yeah, surprisingly. The majority of this episode will be our interview with Van, which was excellent. Um, but the book came. It comes out on Wednesday, the seventeenth of November, which will have been a week ago. And uh, uh, as you'll hear in the interview, Van basically recommends that we buy the independent bookstores. Um, it's a very good book, and it's very interesting. I think that one of the things that she discusses with us which i hadn't really thought about before i think one of the things that interested me was um that she sort of said like through the research that it took around the book that most people um do believe in a conspiracy theory and i think that's true i think that everyone has engaged in the past with like or has sort of some affliction to a particular theory whether it be something that i consider to be personally like quite low level like you know a lot i mean a lot of people wouldn't but you know people who were like oh, you know, Avril Lavigne died in 2002 mm-hmm. and she's a clone now. Or like, yeah. you know, a lot of people think specific things about, um, you know, whether the royals were involved in the death of Diana. And there's lots of just things that sit out in the open. And obviously to me, they're not dangerous because I think it's fun to throw around that topic. But it's that's not necessarily true. It could be dangerous for the people involved in that conspiracy theory. It likely is dangerous for them, their reputation, the way they live. And I think that there is an element of unfairness and then it leads into danger in that kind of thinking, right? If it's not true and there's nothing, there's no evidence to support it in the way that we exchange information like obviously every conspiracy theory has an element of danger to it but i thought it was an interesting thing that like yes most people do probably have something that they believe in that's it is a like conspiratorial thinking right Mm -hmm. also it's just like you know and she did talk about this it's like you start with one and then it yeah, just goes it's a pipeline yeah, yeah on and on like the title says. <laughs> um and we have touched on in a few episodes ago we did an, an anti-vax episode yep. about um and hannah mentioned the the pipeline from wellness to q and on to q and on yeah and a lot of those things like they do intersect and van does talk about that in the interview um so it's really you know i guess it's even though maybe they're a bit harmless yeah like i actually and i'm obviously not a flat earther but I spent like a bit of time a few years ago watching a lot of flat earth theories because I I just found it so interesting, like all of these little bits that they had um, and brought together to kind of like prove in quotes their case. Yeah. Even the smaller conspiracy theories that are, you know, might just be a bit of fun um, can be hurtful. And I actually think, and I wasn't expecting to bring this up, but the... um, the murder of that woman who is van lifing with her partner. 
Oh, Gabby Petito? Yeah. So the murder of Gabby Petito and even just a wider comment on true crime Mm. kind of documentaries and all of these conspiracies. And there's been a big, there was a huge amount of people on TikTok who were talking about the Gabby um, Petito Mm -hmm. stuff when it was happening and like theorizing and giving their opinions and things. And then there was a, another movement in reaction to that that was kind of like, oh, hello, this is a bit fucked up that we're just like, oh my God, spicy, give me the tea when someone has actually died. Yeah, absolutely. And the investment that we have. And obviously, like, a lot of that conversation was about the different biases that we have towards, you know, cases that involve young white women. Mm. And this, this, like, the way that an idea or an occurrence or an event grows and grows and grows. And that fuss around particular subject matter is so interesting. And I think it is... Um, such a testament to the way that QAnon and conspiracy theories work. And I think one of the other interesting things that um, Van talks a lot about in the interview, which you're about to hear, is that um, how this relates to democracy, because we elect... Um, and we, we elect the people that represent us and we also consume the media that we believe represents us most, right? And the way that this interacts with conspiracies, like, you know, we elect the Craig Kellys of the world who then go and spread these ideas. And it's like, without the internet, without his disinformation and his platform, like, he, he wouldn't be elected. He wouldn't be a leader in how, you know, democratic processes influence what's on the internet, which in turn influences us. And that sort of weird, dangerous cycle, I think, is really interesting and we don't talk about it enough. All right. Well, enjoy the interview. Yes. Um, and obviously go out and buy the book. We'll put a link um, to one of the, like an independent bookstore where you can buy it online. Um, but do try to buy independent if you can. Um, obviously, Amazon is really good for being very accessible to everyone. But if you can avoid it, we highly recommend that. And Ven also has a podcast with her partner, Ben Davison, called The Week on Wednesday, which you can listen to on Spotify, Apple or Google Pods. Uh, my name is Van Batterman. I'm a writer and activist. I am a columnist for Guardian Australia, uh, which might be one of the reasons why I attract a bit of heat on the internet. Quite a coveted position. Uh, the spoiler alert is that if I'm bullied to the point where I have a nervous breakdown and, and die, my job does not go to the person who bullies me the most, just as a full disclaimer <laughs> on that one. Like, that's not how that works. Yes. Noted. It's not like a kingship where whoever wields the knife gets the crown. That's not how these things work. <laughs> yes. I'd like to say that um, our listeners are not the people who need to hear that lesson, but, you know, if you... You never know. You never know. And also you might know someone who needs to hear it. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's bizarre. Like, I, I really have a, like, I... I have like an anti-fan club of people who hate my guts and yet relentlessly stalk every medium appearance, every podcast. They photo, they like screenshot everything I write in print. And it is, it's quite a bizarre thing. And it's one of the reasons why I got so fascinated with internet culture, because I'm not, I'm not from the media. Like I'm a theater person. I'm with art school. You know what I mean? Which Mm. is why I find internet rumours about me seeking a political career because I did all the things at art school you're supposed to do, which is the reason why I can't have a political career. And there's a a movie out there somewhere which involves me hitting somebody smeared in meat with a fly swatter. So it's, you know, that's not really how you win votes in a modern election. Oh, maybe it is. I mean, everything's changing every day. It's not really my uh, career part. But over the past seven years since I went from the theatre to more media work, I've watched myself be turned into like an internet folk villain where there's this library of false information about me that exists online, information that I have no control over whatsoever. And one of the really bizarre paradoxes of, of having an online presence is that the more you engage 
with the mythology about you, actually, the more you fuel it. So turning up to go, that's not me, that didn't happen. For this chorus of people who really want to believe that kind of mythology, that becomes evidence that all those things are true. So you can read this just mad stuff about me, like there's a claim that that my father was a casino baron which I love because I grew up in a working class family where my father was like an RSL manager and worked for the TAB and that sort of white collar working class suburban existence. I was the first person in my family to go to university. So reading on the internet that I come from like great wealth is always hilarious. And then there's the whole claim you know, that I went to a fancy drama school. I didn't go to a fancy drama school. I went to the University of Wollongong, which is many things, but fancy is <laughs> I, I taught at a fancy drama school. Like I was, I had a paid job that I took because, you know, obviously it was a great opportunity, but it's things like that. And this sort of strange cultivation of notoriety based on things that are either exaggerations or frankly untrue. And it's so weird because you go, I'm actually quite an accessible person, like, if you ask me a question about myself, I'll answer it. And I also have, I think I've worked out that I have something like half a million words in print in The Guardian. Like my opinions about anything are a matter of record because of the kind of commentary I do. You get all of this biographical information about where I grew up and my parents and what they did. And you can read articles about the disease my father died of or my relationship with my mother or my childhood illnesses. Like it's, it's all there and it's verifiable information. And yet there's a community of people who steadfastly refuse to believe that anything I have said about myself is true or that the facts printed about me are true. And it's fascinating. Like if if it wasn't happening to me, it, like I don't know, I'd be so aware of the willingness of people to build mythologies and these sort of strange, like I've done terrible things in my life. Everybody has, you know, made mistakes and broken hearts and had my heart broken and had disappointments and failures and all of those things. But it's really interesting when a a character is created for you that so many people are willing to invest in. And it's one of the things that I think really fueled my understanding looking at QAnon as a phenomenon and these other internet conspiracy cults and obviously what happened to Anita Sarkeesian and Zoe Quinn and the other people who were targeted in Gamergate was the way that they became they became folk villains and these entire communities spring up on the internet where in defiance of the vast amount of factual information that's available people willingly believe create communities of willing belief to create these mythologies And I think that put me in a position to write the book the way that I've written it, to go, there's a, there's this, there's this idea that people have about internet conspiracy cult believers that they're like either stupid or not very educated, or they're they're, this sort of, you know, like intellectually limited rubes, I think is, and, and there are a lot of classist assumptions that go with, oh, only poorly educated working class people believe this stuff. And it's not true. Like one of the things that we've learned about conspiracy cult believers is overwhelmingly they're middle-class people and they're middle-class people. A lot of whom have educations. We know that from the arrests of January 6th, like the January 6th protesters in the United States were small business owners and doctors and lawyers and or like people who like real estate agents and things like that, who hired private jets to fly down to Washington and stayed in hotels to overthrow the government, which is amazing. Hang, hang, hang Mike Pence and I'm staying at the ridges. And yet, so it's like, why are these people, 
they're not they're not engaging in this as a delusion they're engaging in these beliefs as an act of will just like these communities of people on the internet who attack me constantly for a person who i am not they have found other people who are willing to to join in a like a, a shared mythology and and that's the most disturbing thing about the internet conspiracy cults and the kind of behavior that goes on on the internet that in the most fact rich information heavy society ever produced this moment in time where we have more information verifiable information that we ever have almost a reaction to that is this political community of people who come together in order to affirm to one another that the things that are provable witnessable quantifiable are not true and just to share that and they know that on a fundamental level, after writing this book, you know, I came to realize that on a fundamental level, these people know that what they're saying is false. Mm -hmm. They know what they're saying is a myth, but it's as if through sheer force of collective will, they can somehow make it a reality. And that's what's frightening. I think um, the obvious following follow up question is, um, do you think this is, that's what's happening with the anti-vax movement in Australia? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we know that the anti-vax movement in Australia as anti-vaxxers is pretty small. I've seen various studies that have said that's probably only about 2% of Australians are anti-vaxxers. And before I make any comments about anti-vaxxers, full personal disclaimer, when I was a small child, I am so old that when I was a small child, you had to have individual vaccinations for various diseases. And that was quite uh, you know, like a, there was quite a schedule to get all your vaxxers. It was they didn't parcel them all up in one go. And we had moved from Canberra to Sydney and my mother just went to the local GP, not knowing who they were, and was like, Van gets very upset about the needles and is quite scared by the behaviour that goes on. And I, I'm aware of the fact that she needs a, a measles vaccine. And what my mother didn't know was that this GP was an anti-vaxxer and said to my mother, oh, you know, this whole vaccine thing is completely overrated and it's better for children just to be exposed to diseases and she'll be perfectly fine. And so my mother was like, okay, my mother, working class woman, trusted a, doc like, trusted a doctor because everything in her life had told her to do that. And, you know, in 10,000, like 9,999 cases out of 10,000, that would have been the case. She got an anti-vaxxer and I didn't get a measles vaccine. So I promptly got measles when I was 17 at an age when I was older and it did almost kill me. And I was pyrexic. I was so weak. I couldn't be taken to hospital. The doctors came to the house and told my mother I had a 50, 50 chance of surviving the night. And amazingly, the fever broke and I survived. I remember every single second of having measles and what that did to my body and how sick I was and how much pain I was in. And as a result of having measles, what they now know as a fact, which is what happened to me, is that measles is so dangerous because not only is the measles extremely awful, but it cancels out all of the other immunities in your system. So within two years, all of the needles I had had, all the vaccinations I had were rendered completely meaningless. And I got whooping cough, mumps, rubella, um, some other horrible thing, chicken pox. Like I just had all of those childhood diseases I had between the age of like 17 and 21. Wow. And I have scars from the chicken pox and I will probably get shingles when I'm older and the rest of it because of this one anti-vax piece of human garbage who misused his power as a doctor and betrayed his oath of healthcare and deceived my mother into not letting me be vaccinated. And my mother has never forgiven herself, which is unconscionable because she just took the advice that she was given. And so I'm a militant pro-vaccine advocate. Like I do 
I write articles about this all the time and the rest of it because it's it's a collective responsibility to vaccinate. And because I came so close to death, so close, I stare into that dark tunnel all the time and just go, this is unforgivable. So I, I will make that the disclaimer so everybody knows that I'm really big on facts. I'm really not into willful self-delusion as a rule. And I've got to say, mm-hmm. writing the book was really interesting in looking at just the propensity in all of us, because it's in me as well, to believe things that suit us ideologically or, you know, suit us morally or spiritually or all of those things. We all have that capacity. One of the things I learned in the book is the overwhelming majority of people believe in at least one conspiracy theory, that maybe something's a bit funny with Big Pharma or all capitalists are in it together having secret meetings. And that's not true. Capitalists have public meetings. What are you talking about? What do you think the World Economic Forum is? And, um, And I... Like I'm very like what I've written about recently, and I have a piece, an extract from the book in the Guardian today about how the sort of QAnon stuff got into Australia, and it did get in through the wellness community, which is also how it got in in Germany. And QAnon's fascinating because it it's like an omni conspiracy theory. Like it will, it's it's like it's literally like the creature from the John Carpenter movie, The Thing, where it's an organism of its own that takes over and absorbs the genetic material of whatever other kind of conspiracy movement it comes into contact with. And it's described, my colleague at the Guardian, Bridget Delaney, who does a lot of writing about the wellness community and wrote Well Mania, which is a great book about her experiences in the sort of wellness community. She sort of discovered a a term that had been coined years ago called fusion paranoia, where you have sort of separate conspiracy theory communities that start forming bonds and making links based on a a shared value around a particular conspiracy. So QAnon in America slots into, well, QAnon as a a belief system slots into anti-Semitic myths, which are thousands of years old. And we can trace the sort of secret cabal torturing children in the tunnels underneath the cities. That's like we can trace that to the Romans, you know, that's literally two and a half thousand years of nuttiness. It has an explicitly anti-Semitic character, uh, given some of the myths that it uses. Some of the symbols in QAnon are just repurposed from literally thousands of years of persecuting Jewish people and Jewish belief. But also in America, it takes on a lot of American neo-Nazi beliefs, things like the Day of the Rope, um, the storm, this sort of judgment day, it absorbs this sort of uh, it's evangelical Christian uh, conspiratorial beliefs about, you know, judgment day and righteousness and this kind of stuff. In in Japan, there's like a community of QAnon believers in Japan who have their own particular sort of, um, they apply thing, like old conspiracies about the Japanese royal family that are, um, that are part of their sort of mythos. In Australia and in Germany, there were sort of similar entry points of QAnon that came in through the wellness community and here and there. Um, and in, in Germany, they called the sort of wellnessy sort of new agey people querenkers or like free, it sort of translates to free thinkers or new thinkers, independent thinkers kind of thing. And people who are into like Reiki and organic dog food and whatever. Um, and in Australia, it was much the same thing. So you had... The anti-vax stuff was particularly in Australia established around sort of a natural health wellness sort of scene. Obviously not everybody 
I too have gone to yoga classes and yet have not started to believe in lizard people. Like we're not saying the Venn overlap is entire. We're saying that there are thin slices and the QAnon stuff about, you know, government conspiracies and a deep state and a cabal of, of people who taught your children under the streets that it sort of came in through there. And the fusion paranoia effect happened where you had people in the wellness community who think of things like big pharma pharmacology and like and vaccination as some kind of like cabal or you know conspiratorial community of people trying to control our lives and get us all addicted to drugs and fill us full of poisons and toxins to control us and that kind of paranoia melded with this QAnon belief in the deep state and the you know child molesting elites capitalists who fly in helicopters to kidnap children like it's crazy it is crazy it's totally unhinged kind of stuff but in one another's sort of belief systems they found a match you know like coronavirus and that protein it attaches in your body like the little things that stick out that's basically how QAnon works QAnon is kind of like coronavirus it's got these little spikes that attach to what other spike of conspiratorial belief communities have and it attaches itself and that's how they get um and that's how it gets in mm -hmm. so that's sort of what what i observe that's how what's going on in melbourne at the moment with the anti-lockdown protests we know that there's an overlap with people who believe that 5g towers are radiating signals on behalf of the chinese or bill gates or somebody to control our minds we know that that's a group of people uh the anti-vaxxers the traditional anti-vaxxers from that sort of wellness strain that's another people the old far right like neo-nazis they're all over QAnon because they see it as a place to recruit more people into you know ultimately genocide uh people with fascist beliefs they're they're very very hard right bad faith political actors like craig kelly and peter credlin who were at those demonstrations yesterday you know there are all of these different layers to it that's forming like a layer cake of problematic political behavior and QAnon creates an opportunity it, it creates an opportunity for believers to find other believers and to form like a comprehensive unifying field theory of paranoia like yeah that's a point about the 5g towers yeah that's a point about the vaccine yeah that's a point about 800 uh, 300 children under the streets of melbourne being tortured for their screams that give people powers and whatever kind of things that they believe and then you have so that's one layer then you have like a, an opportunistic class or the conspiracy entrepreneurs who live on top of that, who are the people who sell various forms of QAnon belief or merchandise or, or just affirmation. Like selling affirmation in these beliefs is quite lucrative. So you have people who run podcasts or run YouTube channels or, you know, on BitChute or whatever, constantly asking for um, various donations here, Venmo me this money, Patreon, whatever and are making money from saying to people, yeah, all of this is true, this is true, this is true. People like Craig Kelly, who would have absolutely no political backing without an internet where he can draw in all of these people into his political project now that he's been endorsed by the Liberal Party. Someone like Peter Credlin, who, um, you know, I genuinely don't believe Peter Credlin believes in lizard people or 300,000 children trapped on the streets. And I genuinely don't think, I, you know, I would be willing to wage money that she is quite vaccinated. But Peter Credlin has a television show that nobody watches and these people are easy to pick up as an audience.
you know, because they go towards the media products that will affirm their worldviews and they buy the T-shirts that have the slogans that they agree with and they give money to anybody who will agree with them and want to align themselves politically with, you know, whoever is happy to affirm this sort of willful nonsense. And that's why this stuff is so dangerous. You know, like it's a community of people who are willing to do literally anything, give money, march in the streets, attack a trade union building in order to affirm to one another that what they want to believe is real. When you were saying, you know, like the study showed that, you know, everyone, most people believe in one conspiracy theory. Do you think it's possible that um, there are any conspiracy theories that don't pose a danger? Like, is there any sort of like safe or, you know, it's okay for people to have an outlet or believe something? Or do you think that every conspiracy theory has some sort of pipeline that offers a danger to a society at, at large? Oh, look, I, if you are willing to believe, and I say this about myself as well, and I found writing, because I'm, I'm religious, mm. right? and it's, and I've always been able to sort of balance that with my sort of hard-edged fact-based lifestyle because it's like, well, my spirituality is my own business. Everybody has to reconcile themselves with the ine inevitability of death. Is it such a bad thing? You know, like I can, as a, as a, as a modern person, I can go, well, facts are in this realm and analogy and symbolism and, you know, the inutterability of the divine is entirely subjective and over and in this corner and, and make that kind of distinction. But particularly writing the book, it was like, well, how, how do I, how do I, how do I turn around and go, well, you know, there's this 2,000-year-old book that I'm quite into from which I draw, a, you know, a lot of guidance about how to behave morally and be a good person in a bad society that says things like, you know, snakes are evil and will talk to you and make you eat bad fruit. Like, I understand that on an like on a symbolic level what that represents and you know we can have a long conversation about how early christians knew that this was all symbolic as well like you know biblical literalism is quite a late movement in terms of christian history this must be so fascinating for everybody um but it made me go well how committed am i to the project of truth and evidence like what am i in my character willing to discount or ignore or a paradox i'm willing to sustain you know, it's quite challenging to look at belief and go, well, that's obviously dangerous. Um, what they're doing is dangerous and not go, well, what's dangerous in me? How could I get manipulated in that way? And I mean, I'm very lucky that I'm also a Marxist. So I have an ongoing dialectical struggle between my, you know, very material Marxist belief system and my, you know, Christian spiritual belief system. So they have to sort of argue with one another constantly, which is healthy and good. But it is really interesting. And especially like I've spent my adult life like on the left and been involved in activist movements across different issues and you know sat in those rooms where people were like yeah man like uh, the capitalists are all getting together and you know they're planning to do this and they're planning to do that and unfortunately i think part of political adulthood is going a lot of things these things happen because people are on the same page not because they're meeting in secret rooms and there are not started agenda items mm -hmm. you know and that the information that we have about how society functions and who makes decisions and who has power and where money works they're things that uh, like an independent media is there to investigate like they're it's chaotic and sometimes it's very contingent and opportunistic but we really need to put resources towards transparency and accountability and just keep our eyes on the facts that's really important because the reality is is that if you want to believe something is true like the the people who want to believe that i'm some kind of rich kid who 
you know, like all the mythology I've read about myself on the internet, which is unbelievably dangerous to me as an individual, like there are people out there who believe that I am so completely undeserving of every job I've ever had and that I am, you know, this bad liar and evil kind of presence. It only takes one person to go, you know, if we bump her out, the world will be a better place. Like if that dehumanizing dialogue continues, if people are willing to constantly buy into that mythology, it becomes a, it becomes a reality to people that they then act upon. And that can be left, right, centrist, indifferent. That can be Christian. That can be Marxist. You know, there are a lot of people who in the name of Marxist commit, Marxism committed very, very bad crimes against humanity. And a lot of people have done that in the name of Christianity, even though Marxism and Christianity's belief systems would tell you that was very bad. Like if, once you're in a community of people who affirm those beliefs to you and you get trapped in a sealed information environment, well, reality starts to look very different. And it's, it's such a, I, I mean, it's hard not to see it as a reaction to being in an information rich society. I mean, one of the things that I learned, so I interviewed a clinical psychologist called Dr. Richard Wise, who's superb in when I was researching the book, cause I was like, what, like, are these people, is this an issue of mental illness? Is it an issue of delusion? And he was like, well, psychologically, what we understand about conspiracy theories and conspiratorial belief is that they, they come from a position of distress and the interview that I did with him, he talked about how people become overwhelmed with information and overwhelmed with the nuance of information and conspiratorial thinking comes from a psychological position they call the paranoid schizoid position, where the nuance and diversity and options are so overwhelming that the mind resolves to just polarize everything. So it becomes black white, good, bad, light, dark, you're with us or against us, you're a patriot or a pedophile, like, and it becomes that kind of binary. And it's a way of, it's a way of finding clarity in distress. And some of the people who I talk about in the book, like there's this one woman who became quite famous for a meltdown she had in Target, which she destroyed a mask stand. And this woman's sort of on a worldwide apology tour at the moment. And she was a QAnon believer where she talks about how coronavirus was happening, the lockdowns were happening, people wearing masks, the world had changed. She had some family trauma that she hadn't really processed and she was vulnerable. She was on the internet. She got rabbit holed into seeing all of these different provocations and she fell apart psychologically and the whole QAnon thing made heaps of sense to her all of a sudden. All of a sudden there was a unifying theory and she could go with it. And that's like a classic demonstration of what Dr. Wise was talking about that overwhelmed with information in a period of distress, unable to sort through like the nuance and complexity of the situation for whatever reason, in her case, seemingly existing family trauma and just fell apart at the seams and believed it and latched onto it. And any of us are that kind of, um, any of us are that kind of vulnerable if we're, under extraordinary pressure. And I think over the course of the coronavirus lockdowns, you've seen that in various fora, like we've all been under unprecedented psychological pressure. We're from a generation, I love how this is so generous towards myself saying you, you guys and I are from a generation, we aren't, I'd have to be about <laughs> 300 years older than you. Um, but heaps of my victims are probably your age. Um, that is a joke. <laughs> so 
like we're living through these extraordinary times where people are completely overwhelmed by information. We're all trying to get our heads around the science of coronavirus and what that means in our day-to-day lives. What are the in, what are the economic implications of that? What politically is the right way forward? And as a democracy, those decisions do land on our feet as citizens. Like, who is the best person to lead us through this crisis? What is the policy that we as individuals, families, communities, neighbourhoods feel is appropriate like what is like these are difficult decisions i mean democracy puts the decision on you uh, as a citizen to work out the best way forward and it's a difficult time for people it's a really difficult time and that's why the QAnon, anti-vax anti-lockdown thing the sort of hydra of conspiratorial belief has gained such purchase you know some of the people who are protest who are protesting like what are they protesting really they're sort of protesting reality. Like they're protesting the fact that they are contents under pressure. They don't want reality to be the way that it is. They don't, they don't want lockdowns to be a necessity. They don't want the virus to exist. And it's sort of understandable psychologically why they're out on the streets. The problem is that they're meeting a community of people who are absolutely willing, whether it's for their own need for affirmation or because they're making money from it, or they're cynically trying to harvest votes or audiences, those people are totally willing to manipulate that need and fuel that belief for their own cynical ends. And that's like reading the book, you just be like, and writing the book for me was a process of going, this is really dangerous because you don't need a majority to cause trouble. You don't need a majority of people to threaten democracy. You don't need a majority of people to cause absolute social carnage. You don't need a majority of people to, you know, to destabilize communities and cause serious social problems. The experience of writing the book really forced me to look at my own prejudices and my own willingness to believe things. I've become a lot more circumspect and evaluated a lot of my own political behaviour in light of looking at like when in in my life and it, it, you know it I'm so lucky to have had the experience to go what like belief versus facts how many facts are you willing to ignore to sustain a belief and that's hard work like that's a really confronting democratic question and to go well as a voter who has to sort through information critically in order to make the best decision. Am I really giving democracy my best if I'm willing to believe things just based on a sense of tribalism and loyalty? And that's not saying, you know, I've changed the way I vote or anything because I haven't. Um, I'm like, I doubt that I'm ever going to, but it's more that I've, I've had to look at like things on, things on Twitter that I might've jumped on board with in the past or accepted uncritically because I wanted it to be true. Like I'm so aware now of the danger inherent in that. And, and like, it's, it's just, it's not like I've ever sort of joined a bandwagon for the sake of joining a bandwagon, but I now really drill down to, well, what is this and what does it mean? And is like the sort of casual nature of the internet where it's just like, oh, I'm going to like that comment or I'm going to share that. And yeah, that's probably true because somebody I like said it. 
I think the internet is making us aware, has made me aware over the course of writing the book, the glibness is really dangerous, like the glibness of belief or the instinct of tribalism, you know, or the, the knee-jerk loyalty to an idea, an ideology, a set of principles, an identifiable political character, like, is really dangerous. It's the glibness that's dangerous. Because obviously, like, if you sat down and you're in a policy forum or you're Develop, like, you know, preparing legislation or lobbying or writing an article for The Guardian. Obviously, when I write a column, I sit down, I get facts, I analyse things from different angles. And that's, you know, that's the job and that's what you do. But it's that awareness that the internet is an ongoing newspaper. Like, it is a vast ongoing newspaper where literally every comment is important because those comments accumulate. And the nature of political reality is fragmenting for a lot of people because of that glibness like there's just this flood of glibness and it's been interesting sort of watching the american political conversation after i've written my book and gone well i mean because the american political the american political parties are dominated by ideologies which are different to the australian equivalents like the democratic party in america has this liberal streak that would be totally at home in the Liberal Party of Australia, that it doesn't exist in the Labor Party, even though the Democrats and Labor have a lot in common in terms of, you know, um, support of the trade union movement and their engagement with working people. Like there are different characters to those political movements and the Republicans, my God. I mean, where do we even start? Even though there are really principled Republicans who probably would vote Labor in Australia on the basis of, you know, in like integrity and, um, and, you know, like organisational stability and the rest of it that wouldn't feel comfortable voting for Liberals here, etc. And just the distance from America and going, well, this is, this is really a, a prejudice and biased and affirmational conversation happening in democratic quarters, like having that distance and just being able to go assess everything, look at everything, like who is joining this and who is bandwagoning and why is that happening? It's really confronting because it is about that sensitivity to manipulation, not, and because that sensitivity to manipulation is what bad faith political actors have identified as a way of mobilising a guerrilla army of people on the streets in their own interest. And that's how January 6 happened. You know, they knew if there are cynical political actors who have worked out how you can channel information towards communities that can flick activist switches on and off and get people to be part of a movement that they don't even know that they're part of. And that was the growing awareness in the book was like, wow, these people don't even know. They don't even know who's pulling the strings. And in Australia, the really chilling example was that there were anti-lockdown protests that took place here that had actually been organized in Germany and that there were organizers from far-right groups in other countries whose understanding of the um, the information pipelines on the internet was so precise that they could cause civil disturbances in Australia that resulted in people being hurt and arrests and, you know, this sort of political chaos. They had been organized by people who may have never been to this country because they knew how those pipelines worked, because they knew about the vulnerability of belief and the language around those belief systems that could activate people. So that's, I have become very aware and sensitive to those particular dynamics. So people go, where is the best place to buy the book? Number one is your local independent bookstore, which you should support because independent bookstores are great. 
Two is an Australian chain. I mean, why not? Like if they're chains, we want them to be Australian. Three, like wherever you can physically get it, sure. And four, if like, you know, and there are accessibility issues that make online multinational corporations accessible to people. So as long as you buy, like, I just want you to buy the book and I want us to have a nice big fat conversation about how we protect democracy from the manipulation of conspiracy cults. And I want people to read the book and have that conversation and go, well, what is what does this mean in terms of how we approach the internet? What does this mean in terms of our own political behaviour? What does this mean internally about prejudice and willingness and tribalism and how far we're prepared to be glib? And what are the consequences of being glib and, and helping create information monsters that motivate people in what could be completely counterproductive areas? And there's a book I'd like to recommend as a sequel, if you get into what I'm talking about, there's a really great book by Nina Yankovic, who's my buddy, who I interviewed in um, Q1 on and on, called How to Lose Information War. And she is a scholar for the, she's a disinformation scholar. And she studied how basically Russian foreign influence operations were screwing with the people of Estonia and like what was happening in Eastern Europe and how these things, these sort of inf information wars were being weaponized by nation states against other nation states. And she talks about how in um, the lead up to the 2016 election, she had friends in Washington who were from like an amateur theatrical group who were all sort of left-leaning, who were manipulated into singing songs from Les Mis to protest Trump or whatever. And at the same time, there was like a far, like a far right mobilization who was meeting with these people as a counter protest. So you had this sort of chaotic, polarized sort of thing happening. And uh, she realized that all of them had been manipulated by the same sort of movement, that the chaos had been sown, that other political, external political actors had sort of fostered the creation of these two different protests to bring them into this sort of chaotic combination and people she knew were participating in an action that had actually been organized as part of an influence operation with political goals that none of those people would have supported and this is the kind of this is the world that we live in you know a post-brexit post-trump election you know steve bannon's war room kind of world this QAnon world where the integrity of information has never been so important and and that's you know this is where the discussion is at. And I want people to read my book and Nana's book and lots of other and lots of other books that are being written on this subject. And there's some amazing um, scholarship and research around what's happening in America and just where the information war is. And, you know, we have to start making adult policy decisions about how we want to deal with that or we will lose our democracy. Because you can see it's eroding the United States of America. Like things are increasingly out of control and the effort required for democratic systems to hold has got to be really conscious. Or if America falls, the prospect for Australia is not great. Let's be honest. And clearly those operations, those information wars, like the information war is how Britain ended up leaving the European Union. And fortunately it's been such a disaster for Britain, you know, that they can't even get food on their shelves and the whole place is falling to pieces that that has actually been a really great corrective to sort of anti-EU anti mobilisations that have been encouraged by bad faith political actors to weaken and destroy the EU as a bulwark of democracy. Mm. I mean, that's what's going on. 
and we know that's what's going on you know because it's the it, facts and evidence support that <laughs> but you know it's um it's a really dark time and yeah so just buy my book like seriously buy my book and read it and talk about it you can argue with me about it which is fine as long as we're having a discussion about how to preserve democracy i mean because i'm a democracy enthusiast and uh the the enemy, the ranks of the QAnon believing conspiracy cult adherents and the people who manipulate them, they are not democracy enthusiasts. They are quite the opposite. If you didn't find us completely insufferable, come back next Wednesday for a new episode. You can also find us on Instagram at Cheek Media Co or online at cheekmedia.com.au. Yes, that's the one. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs>